I give thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Exalted above all things, your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. And though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it endures forever. Don't forsake the work of your hands. Well, good morning and welcome to Reach Church. My name is Andrew and I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor. And if you're new today, I want to say congratulations. You are brave. You came with negative temperatures and a lot of snow. We are so glad that you've chosen to be here with us today on Super Bowl Sunday. Quick straw poll. How many think the Buccaneers are going to win? That's all three of you. Good. All right. How many of you think the Chiefs are going to win? All right. That's the majority of you. How many could care less? Yeah, all right. How about that? We also want to take a minute to welcome our online community. Let me invite you up front to grab your Bible. Grab your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to bring you a Bible. These Bibles are a gift from us here at Reach Church to you. Throw up your hand unapologetically. Say, hey, I'd like one. We encourage you to bring the Bible with you each and every week so you have a chance to write down observations and applications and how the Lord is speaking to your heart. As you grab your Bible, turn to the Old Testament book, so start from the beginning, turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. You'll have the first five books of the, the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you'll have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you'll have 1 Samuel. So I'll give you an opportunity to get there. And as you do, I want to share something with you. In 1946, Branch Rickey, owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, took a stand against Major League Baseball's infamous color line when he signed Jackie Robinson to the team. The deal put both men in the crosshairs of the public, the press, and even other players. And facing unabashed racism from every side, Robinson was forced to demonstrate tremendous courage and to let his talent on the field win over the fans and his teammates, silencing his critics and forever changing the world by changing the game of baseball. This movie, 42, the story about Jackie Robinson's life was acclaimed as a movie that will make you believe in heroes again. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen this movie or a movie like it, but what I know to be true of these types of movies is that on the back is a synopsis. And the synopsis is designed to pull you into the narrative. This story, 42, isn't written about you. You didn't grow up with the racial divide where you were trying to just figure out a way from making it from a Negro league into an all-white league. You and I, we didn't deal with the, the stress and the divisions of what Jackie Robinson dealt with. Yet in a cinematic narrative, it's amazing how we feel compelled. We're drawn in 
to a storyline. We're pulled in by a character. We can see interlaced throughout the movie the narratives that there are these moral lessons that we can apply to our lives. And even though it wasn't about us, these narratives can have incredible impact on us. In another sports documentary, my favorite movie of all time, my favorite line of my favorite movie of all time is Attitude Reflects Leadership, Captain. Can anybody tell me a movie that's from? Remember the Titans for the win. You doing your job? Yeah, I'm doing my job. Remember the Titans. Attitude reflects leadership. Narratives are incredible. They're designed to come alive in us and to compel us to to attach emotionally and intellectually to the storyline. And they teach us a lot of life lessons. And just like that, we can even develop one-liners where in a moment we can be drawn back into a space and a time where we were impacted by a narrative. The Bible is comprised of 66 books. From the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, to the very last book of the New Testament, Revelation. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, and there are 27 books in the New Testament. There are eight different genres or literary styles that we have broken the Bible down into so that we can better relate and correlate the Word of God, which we know and believe to be active and alive as it's written in our hearts today. These eight literary styles begin with the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is just a, another way of saying the first five books. We talked about it earlier when I introduced the book of 1 Samuel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also a part of the Torah, which is the law. Outside of that, we move into a collection of books that are historical. It's what we have distilled down into historical narratives. Outside of the historical narratives, after that you move into the writings. And there are at least three types of writings. You have wisdom literature, you have poetry, and you have songs. Coming out of the writings, we experience prophecy, prophets with five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And that wraps up the Old Testament with the book of Malachi. We're quickly introduced after four centuries or a 400-year span of time where God's voice was silent in Israel. And Jesus enters the scene, the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And we're introduced to the gospels. There's four gospel accounts. These are literal narratives, historical examples of Jesus' life, ministry, promises and teachings, miracles, death, resurrection, and the promise of his second coming, as well as the mandates that he gives those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Outside of the Gospels, we then are introduced to Acts of the Apostles, which is a a New Testament historical account of the establishment of the early church and how the Holy Spirit of God moved through the early Christians. Out of that, we have Epistles. An epistle is just another way of saying letters. There are letters that are written specifically to entire churches Thessalonica, Colossae, Corinth, Galatia, Rome. But then there are also other letters that are individual letters. 
These are pastoral epistles where Paul is going to write to Timothy and Titus and Philemon. Peter and John will have these personal letters. And then we round out the eighth and final literary genre with the apocalyptic literature. It's truly, it's a prophecy of end times and what that will look like. Now, throughout the Bible, Scripture is one of two things. It is either descriptive or prescriptive. Descriptive is unique in that it describes something that has taken place. It's specific to an individual, to a group of people, to a nation, or to nations in a set period of time with unique circumstances to them. Scripture is also prescriptive, where it is instructive for you and I today, where God gives instructions and lessons on life that are bigger than any one person or one place or one time. Now, one of the unique things that I want to talk about here as we get ready to kick off a brand new series that is actually going to be a collection of little series we're going to start a 32-week study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. This first series we're calling Dedicated, and by the end of today's time together, you'll understand why. Throughout the course of these sub-series through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to study ancient Near Eastern culture. We're going to come to understand ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern history and heritage. We're going to get a glimpse, a, a 30,000 foot view and a 15,000 foot view into the life of a culture and a community and a context that was not specific to you and to me today. Now, here's one of the dangers that the church and church leaders run whenever they start to take something that was descriptive, that was specific between God and a person or persons in a season and in a place in time, and we begin to try to, to make it unique to us. It's what's called taking culture out of context. We're misappropriating and we're missing the point altogether. Let me give you just one example. Most of us, whether you've grown up in the church or not, you're probably familiar at some level with a story about David and a giant from Gath named Goliath. It's actually in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to cover that in one of our little series. And in that story, you learn about this little shepherd boy who's about 15 years old who comes in when the Philistines are attacking the Israelite army. And for a lot of days, this nonsense goes on. And David speaks up and he says, look, who's going to shut this guy up? I volunteer. What happens to the guy who kills this monkey? And they say, well, hey, listen, you, uh, you get the king's daughter. You don't have to pay taxes. There's a lot of really cool stuff. He says, put me out there. There's a lot that goes on, but the long story short is that David with the sling and stones goes and he's able to defeat this giant from Gath. If we are not intentional to understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive, and if we are not careful to know the difference between culture and context, what we could do then, if we applied that narrative as, a, as, a, as descriptive for you and for me today, we could easily misappropriate it and say, anybody who is an enemy to God or an enemy to us, we can go get some stones in a sling and just annihilate them. Can you see that there might be a problem with that? 
I don't know that the Blair Police Department or the Washington County Sheriff's Department or the Nebraska State Patrol, or for those of you who are coming in from Iowa, the Iowa State Patrol, or Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Department, Council Bluffs Police Department, I can't imagine that your defense is going to hold up when they show up on the scene for domestic violence and you're holding a sling and a stone and you say, but God said. And so then we have to ask the question, if, if the Old Testament, specifically ancient Near Eastern culture and context, isn't descriptive for you and for me, then how are we supposed to read it? What are we supposed to glean from it? How do we, how do we apply it to our lives? What does it tell us? What are, what are we supposed to do with it? Is it just a, another history book like, like the history of the United States or other countries and cultures around the world? And the answer is, well, in part, but not entirely. The bigger picture is that the Bible, God's word is inerrant, which means it's perfect. It's free from flaw. And we know that God, who describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, serves as the bookends, and that God never changes. So even though we're about to read actual historical accounts of what took place that was descriptive of a time and a place with individuals that are not us, and we shouldn't read it with a literary objective of trying to apply all the lessons we can from it to our lives, what we can do is we can look at it and say, okay, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, even though this wasn't written for us, about us, in a time where we exist, it does teach us characteristics of God, the nature of God, and how God interacts with humanity, and like a good narrative, we are going to be drawn in, and we are going to be pulled in, and we are going to be able to look at these narratives of God, and we're going to be able to learn from the Word of God in three ways. Through observation, through implication, and through instruction. We're going to be able to learn from God in these Old Testament narratives in three ways. Through observation. What are we observing? What are we seeing that's going on? How does that relate to us here and now? Through implication. What are we seeing implied over and over and over again, and how does it... How's, how does that implication impact my life? How can I relate emotionally, spiritually, physiologically to what's going on? And instruction. There are times, even in narratives, where God gives us crystal clear mandates, instructions of what he expects. And so I believe with all my heart, as we go through this study of the book of 1 Samuel, over the next 30 plus weeks together, God has got something radical Something amazing, something that's going to be monumental in the life of our church and in your lives individually that is going to help shift and shape the landscape of our lives. I want to invite you to be intentional, to come each and every week and to be a part of what God wants to do because we should not read First and or Second Samuel as a one-off. It's not a bunch of topical sermons. We literally, the division of First and Second Samuel was not unique to the author. It was a collection. We see that there are at least three contributors of these books, and it was intended to read as a historical narrative from First Samuel all the way through Second Samuel. But for your benefit and mine, as you're going to find out today, that it's going to take a lot for me to get through 28 verses. God has honored this community by breaking it up so that we can stop and pick it up again next week. Otherwise, we'd be preaching right through halftime of the Super Bowl. We don't need Pepsi commercials. We got Jesus. Amen. Better than half the stuff that's on now. So let me introduce you to a, 
but a little bit of what we're going to step into. Right before 1 Samuel is the book of Ruth. And just before the book of Ruth, which is a historical book, a historical account of Ruth and her life, is the book of Judges. This introduces to us a theocracy. That God, Theo, is the king over Israel. That he is their leader. And God will appoint unique people in seasons and spaces to lead the nation of Israel. To judge the nation of Israel. To give insight and direction to the nation of Israel. To instruct the nation of Israel. And as is consistent throughout the nation of Israel... From generation to generation, these people, not too dissimilar to you and I, lose sight of the value and the importance and the instruction of God in favor of idolatry, in favor of their own needs being met. And we pick up the culmination of all of this where God ultimately will turn the nation of Israel over to themselves. And they're going to move from a theocracy to what we're going to find at the beginning of 1 Samuel, which is known as a dynastic monarchy. They're looking for a dynasty where they can appoint a human king of the flesh to lead the nation of Israel as a dynasty like all of the other nations the world over at that time. So we've got a a group of people in the Israelites that are moving from theocracy to dynastic monarchy. They're in a place where they feel like they've got it all under control. And so they've, they've told God, hey, look, we're going to put you on the back shelf. We don't need you right now. Now, none of us has ever found ourselves there. We're always dedicated and fully surrendered to God. But just imagine, if you will, for a moment that you get comfortable in your own skin and you want to play God. You say, God, I'm cool. Thank you so much for getting me where, I've, where I'm at now. But I've got it from here, big guy. You just hang out there. And if I need anything, I'll let you know. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25. I give you this. In those days, Israel had no king. And what happens without a king? All the people did whatever seemed right. In whose eyes? In their own eyes. That's the precursor. That's the on-ramp for where we're going to find ourselves over the next 30 plus weeks. Father, as we jump now into your word, I pray that I would get out of the way so that you would meet us, each and every one of us individually where we're at. Lord, I pray that as we read this amazing account of a woman and her family so dedicated to you, that we would not misappropriate scripture to make it topical in our lives, but we would understand the principles through observing and the implications and through the instructions that we would adopt these things for ourselves that we would adopt them in a way that honors you and is consistent with your call on our lives. Instruct us, Holy Spirit. Lead us. Draw us to yourself. Encounter us in ways that matter and make sense today. I pray that your word would come alive in us as, as it's read. That as we read your word, it would be an aspect and an act of worship. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be received as a gift to you alone. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I introduce you to four key characters, Eli the priest, Samuel the prophet, Saul the first king of Israel, and David 
the king after God's own heart. That's where we're going to spend the next 30 plus weeks. Now there's going to be multiple other characters that we're going to be introduced to throughout this near ancient Eastern narrative and God and his relationship with the nation of Israel. But I want you to really lean in. Have your pens and your paper and your markers ready and circle and highlight and underline and, and just beg God. I invite you to beg God on my behalf that we would encounter God, that we wouldn't just go through an intellectual exercise of reading the Bible and then through, through, through deduction, just kind of looking at some didactic approach to giving you information, but that we would intentionally remember that this is consistent with the character of God, the heart of God, and what he cares for. We're going to see multiple narratives, but there's a meta-narrative you're going to pick up too. There's actually more than one meta-narrative, meta but we're going to pick up on multiple themes throughout. So let's jump in. The nation of Israel had no judge. They did what was ever, what was right in anyone's eyes that was there. And in verse 1, we're introduced to an obscure man who is not mentioned before and is rarely mentioned after. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah, in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Joaham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives. Now this is important. Men... Many of us are asking why we would have two wives. Is this a polygamist? Is this, uh, what's going on here? And the first is Hannah and the, nec the next one is Penina. Now Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Culturally speaking, it was consistent in their nation at this time that if a man's first wife was unable to conceive a child, remember I talked about a, a, a dynastic monarchy? Well, there was also familial lineage and, 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 and wanting to carry on this, this line of each family. It was not only a rite of passage, but it was considered an honor for your child to carry on your name, to carry on your lineage, to carry on your heritage. And women at the time, women were considered honored and blessed to be able to get to be mothers, it was actually expected of them. They didn't step into a relationship having conversations about now, do we want children? Don't we want children? How many kids are we going to have? Do you want to stop with one boy and two girls? Like, how do we want to custom order this? And let's see if the moon aligns. And if we, if we have an ovulation chart, we can figure this whole thing out. We can create, at least to the best of our abilities, the kind of child we want. Okay. All right. That's not what was going on. What was going on is that for women... The greatest honor for them within their family was to conceive a son, a child, and to, to raise that child up to carry on the name. But if a woman was barren, if she was unable to conceive, then it was considered appropriate for a man to be given another wife or to find another wife that could bear children in order to carry on that line. We see here Hannah mentioned first, probably because... She's his first wife, but ultimately because you're going to see a, a commitment and a love that Elkanah has for Hannah that is unique from Panina. We see that Panina has children, Elkanah does not, or excuse me, that, that, that uh, Hannah does not. Verse 3, each year Elkanah, he would travel to Shiloh. Now Shiloh is where the tabernacle is, it's where the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, the, the Ark of God, is, is, or God is kept in the Ark of the Covenant there at that time, that space, that meeting place. And they would travel to Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. There's a couple of things that we need to pay attention to culturally here. 
The fact that Elkanah is traveling to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice the Lord there at the tabernacle lets us know that he is a pious man. He has a, a piety to his faith. He is committed to God. They would go back multiple times a year for different festivals. There was Pesach or the Passover. There was Shavuot or, or Pentecost or, or the Festival of Weeks. And then there was Sukkot, which is known as a, the festival of booths or tents or shelters. And as they would go back, they would take with them different types of offerings. There were multiple offerings. We're going to touch on just a couple here today. But we see that Elkanah, in his faith to God, would collectively bring his family. And they would go to Shiloh to sacrifice. And we'll look at what kind of sacrifice in just a moment. To the Lord of Heaven's armies at that tabernacle. And he said, now... What does the Lord of Heaven's armies mean? Why is that significant? This is basically the Bible's way of saying, my God is bigger than your God. The Lord of Heaven's armies. That this is the Lord. You see how, pay attention in your Bible where it's all capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh. This is a covenant keeper God. This is the creator of the entire universe. The point where they got to the point where the Israelites wouldn't even mention the name of God, Yahweh. They would have to whisper it and they changed it to Jehovah. It was such a holy name set apart. And you're talking about armies. You're talking about nations who prided themselves on their armies and on their army's abilities. So when Samuel, in their historical account, recalls that Elkanah was taking his family to the Lord of Heaven's armies, it is literally saying, regardless of all of the theism going on, all of the other gods and deities, that the Lord God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10, 17. Praise God for each kid midweek. <laughs> the priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And how many of you, when you hear that, you think that that sounds like a really bad cartoon? <laughs> Hophni and Phinehas. And if they were to make a cartoon of these two clowns, it would be a really bad cartoon. We'll learn about these guys, their wicked behaviors later on. Verse 4, in the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, pay attention to this. He would give portions of the meat to, to Panina. And to each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. And so Panina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Now, this isn't to say that the Lord was punishing Hannah, but what this is saying is they recognized that God, the Lord of heaven's armies, was the creator and the sustainer of all things, and that God had not blessed Hannah with a child at that time. This wasn't a form of punishment. It was simply suggesting that we realize that God is large and in charge. And Penina, knowing the cultural ramifications for a woman who was unable to bear children, took advantage of her. She bullied her. She made her feel less than, we're going to read in a minute that she was actually reduced to tears time after time after time. And I mentioned previously that the Bible is, has got multiple narratives, but that there's a meta-narrative. There's actually multiple meta-narratives, and I'll give an example. One, one meta-narrative from Genesis to Revelation is restoration. God cares about restoration. The other meta-narrative you're going to see over and over and over again, this is a great example for all of us to, to lean into and pay attention to. God cares for the underdogs. If there was an 11th commandment right after number 10, there's actually 613 of them, but if we were to read 11 of them right after, you shouldn't covet, it would be don't be a bully. God has no tolerance 
for bullies. And not just other nations that were opposing Israel. Every time Israel stepped out of line and started taking advantage of other people, and you're going to see that even in the account of Saul, how Saul is anointed by God, but that anointing is stripped away from him because he takes advantage of others. And he walks in absolute disobedience. Guys, if you feel like an underdog here today, welcome to the club. And the answer is God, God cares about you. And he loves you. And he's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And here, Panina would taunt her. Why would Panina make fun of her? Well, I think there's some jealousy going on. First of all, Hannah's the first wife. Second of all, it says that Elkanah loved Hannah deeply. So Panina, even though she was the one who produced the children for Elkanah, Hannah had his heart. Hannah had his affections. And this isn't the first time we see this in Scripture. Anybody remember a guy named Abram and his wife Sarai? What happens when he gets antsy and wants a kid? Sarai says, you know what? Go ahead and take Hagar. See how that worked out? Yeah. Here, verse 7. Year after year, it was the same. Panina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. And each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. I want us to understand something. That there is a parallel and a direct connection between our head, our heart, and our body. That our emotions have direct impact physiologically to our bodies. That what we're going through impacts us in every way. And what we're going to learn here and see here is that God cares about each one of those instances in our life and that we're called to dedicate all of our lives to him. Look at this, verse 8. Look at Elkanah. Guys, how many of you in a minute, you're going to read this, you're going to say, man, I can relate to that. Elkanah goes to his wife, Hannah, he says, why are you crying, Hannah? Why aren't you eating? Why are you downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? And we read this, and anybody who's been married for any length of time looks at this guy and says, what a moron. Where is your empathy? Where is your sense of self-awareness? Instead of going to her and telling her how lucky she is to have you, in the middle of her brokenness and her pain, why don't you remind her how lucky you are to have her? Amen. How blessed you are to have her. That was a lot of women were doing, it looked like we were at a twins baseball game of bobbleheads. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, this guy. Yet how many times have we been this guy? This isn't our story. But it sure does feel like it sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> this guy shows up. He's like, Hannah, 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 stop crying and start eating. You are so blessed to have me in your life. The number of times I have assured my wife of this. <laughs> Stacy, so what if we don't have money? Who cares? We've got each other. You've got me. You don't need entertainment, babe. You've got me. <sighs> We're going to move on. <laughs> Aren't you glad to understand that this is both prescriptive and descriptive and it doesn't describe us? Um, verse 9 tells us, once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh. Okay, why, why would the Bible be specific here about the kind of meal, the kind of sacrifice? Well, there's at least five that we see over and over again, including a grain sacrifice and a burnt sacrifice. And I want to tell you something unique about a burnt sacrifice. Pastor Russell did an amazing job a couple of weeks ago when he preached. Love, love how the Lord is working in that young man's life and how he's growing as a communicator of God's word. 
But he talked about it in Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac and up on the altar and the sacrifice and wondering where things were at. And if we're not intentional to read it as a near ancient Eastern narrative, we think, we actually think that that story is all about Abraham killing Isaac. That literally has nothing to do with the narrative. There was a, a, an offering, a piece, a burnt offering rather, where they would present an offering on the altar and it would be burnt to ashes. There would be nothing left. And the point of that offering was to say, God, all that I have is yours. That story has really nothing to do with killing his boy and God asking him, is all that you have really mine? You see what happens when we introduce culture and context? It reads totally different. So now the kind of offering that we're going to read here is a peace offering. It's not a grain offering. It's not a guilt offering. It's not a sacrificial offering or a, a sin offering. It's a, it's a peace offering. A peace offering had at least three participants. The individual making the sacrifice, the priest, and God. And it was essentially a community sacrifice. It was a, it was a, it was a, a good-natured sacrifice saying, God, thank you for your blessings and I want us to, to be intentional to celebrate you and to, to continue to commit our lives to you. And so it's a peace offering that there will be peace between us and prosperity. And, and Elkanah is a, is a wealthy landowner who has been successful as a businessman agriculturally. He has healthy crops every year and his herds are growing every year. And as a way of appreciation and, and adoration, he comes to Shiloh in what is likely the shelter of, uh, of the Feast of Shelters and they're there celebrating and he, he brings at least one type of sacrifice which he shares with his family, with the priest and with God to say, thank you for your provisions, God. Thank you. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for how you care for me and I'm choosing to give to you. There is a difference between an offering and a sacrifice, a tithe. And here we see that this amazing offering is given. He's sitting there and he gives a sacrificial meal at Shiloh. And Eli the priest was sitting in his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. So he's keeping an eye on everything going on. Hannah was deep in anguish. She was crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this, this vow. Oh, Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow, and if you will answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he will be dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. And you can read about the law of, of covenant and, and of, of sacrifice and dedication in Numbers chapter 6. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli the priest watched her. And seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had to be drinking. Drinking in church. Getting drunk in church. Verse 14 must you come here to get drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. I would, I would venture to guess that the reason this is recorded in this historical account is because this wasn't the first time somebody showed up at church drunk. <laughs> Eli's watching, he's like, oh, here we go again. What are you doing? Throw away your wine. Look at verse 15. And this, this should help us see just how much of an impact her emotions had on her physical body. Oh no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or even anything stronger, but I'm very discouraged. I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Now the word heart here is a derivative of three things, mind, 
will, and emotions. Mind, will, and emotions. She said, I was telling God everything that's in my mind, and I was telling God everything that I desire, and I was telling God all the things that I'm feeling, my mind, my will, and my emotions. I was telling God everything. I was pouring out. I was pouring out my heart, my mind, my will, and my emotions to the Lord. Don't think that I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. Verse 17, in that case, Eli said, go in shalom. The word shalom in the original language, it literally means an entire or a complete peace. Now she expresses here a physical, an emotional, and an intellectual anguish. And Eli prays this prayer of blessing over her that she will experience shalom in her life, in her circumstances, in her scenario. And he says, may the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Now he doesn't hold any superpowers. He is simply interceding on her behalf. He's crying out to God for her, with her. Verse 18, oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. There's no evidence that her circumstances changed. But when we live surrendered in our circumstances, we can experience the fullness of our Savior. Let me say that again. When we choose to live surrendered in our circumstances, we can experience the fullness of our Savior. Hannah goes to the tabernacle. She's crying out in anguish. And in all of it, she surrenders to God. And Eli just prays this prayer of blessing in agreement with her. And she goes home. When you live surrendered in your circumstances, you can experience the fullness of your Savior. How many of us are not experiencing the fullness of our Savior because we're so focused on our circumstances? I told you we can learn through observation, we can learn through implication, and we can learn through instruction. And you're going to see both observation and implication time and time and time again of how we handle our emotions and our heart, our mind, our will, our emotions in our circumstances. When you surrender your circumstances, you can experience the fullness of your Savior. Verse 19, the entire family, Hannah, Penina, got up the next morning and out of piety went and worshiped the Lord once more. They celebrated the goodness of God. They poured it out. They gave everything. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea. Remember doesn't mean he forgot about her. It's a simple way of saying he honored her. He recognized. He, 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 was, uh, he obliged to, to her request. And in due time, she gave birth to a son. And she named him Shemuel or Samuel. For she said, I asked the Lord for him. The word Samuel, that name, the etymology of it literally means God hears or God answered me. God hears or God answers me. Verse 21, the next year Elkanah and his family went on their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go. She, she told her husband, wait until the boy is weaned. That's about three years old culturally. Then I'm going to take him to the tabernacle and I'm going to leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. He's starting to learn. Stay here for now and may the Lord help you keep your promise. How many of us would do well to make that our prayer? May the Lord help us to keep our promise. So she stayed home and nursed the boy until he was weaned. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. 
They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice, and you'll find this in Numbers 15. And they brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. And after sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. And now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. What an amazing name to give this child. A constant reminder of the goodness of God and the covenant of God. She, she made a promise. She made a covenant. She entered into this agreement with God. God, if, if you'll just give me the desire of my heart, if you will make easy my burden, if you will honor me and I will be honored amongst the people of my community, if you will allow me to bear a child for my husband, if you will help me to, to regain a sense of identity with this woman, Panina, who reminds me constantly how broken and desolate I am, then I will honor you. I will give my child to you. I'll dedicate my child to you. I won't, I won't cut his hair. That's a part of the, the vow that she's making. I'll honor you. I'll give him to you. I'll dedicate him to you. And when God answers her prayer, she reminds herself of that decision by giving him a name that every time she calls out, Samuel, what she's saying is, God heard me. God heard me. She had a constant reminder in front of her every day that her child was a blessing from the Lord. Parents, we would all do well to remember, though not perfect, our children are a blessing from the Lord. irregardless of the circumstances leading up to them being here, our children are a blessing from the Lord. We would do well to remember that we are called to raise our children, to bring them up in the ways of the Lord in hopes that when they're older, they won't, they won't turn from God. we would do well to, to see our children with that intrinsic love that we feel toward them. And remember the words, the New Testament that says, which one of his fathers would give his a child a stone if he was hungry? Wouldn't he give him bread? How much more does God care for his children? And as we look at the way we care for our children, remember that pales in comparison to the way that our Papa God cares for us. It pales in comparison to the way that our Papa God cares for us. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna, I wanna set up this series and I wanna set up the study of the book of 1 Samuel by telling you there's at least three things we're gonna see over and over and over again. There's a lot of, Narratives, but there's a one meta-narrative, two meta-narratives, three meta-narratives we're going to see over and over again. The reason that we chose the book of 1 Samuel as we were praying is because of our annual theme. Now, if you're new to Reach Church, you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Every year around September, October, November, myself, along with our pastors and our leaders and our staff and our elders, we get away. We fast, we pray, and we ask God, 
to reveal to us a word, a picture, a direction. We ask God to give us a theme of what he wants us to focus on in the coming year. Last year, many of you know, we had no idea what we were getting into when we felt like God was calling us to reach further in our faith and farther into our community. And a few short months later, we would end up in a global pandemic with an opportunity to reach people unlike any time in the life of this church before. Hence the name of the church. This year, we believe with all of our hearts that God is calling us to be faithful, to be faithful. First Samuel is one of the most brilliant books of the entire Bible that demonstrates God's faithfulness to all generations. Second, the second meta-narrative that we're gonna see in this book is one about leadership in our lives and what happens when we put God at the forefront and when we try to play God. A, a move from a theocracy where God is our king into a dynastic monarchy where we, we want human hands to hold on to. But there's a third meta-narrative, which is why we started off this study through the book of 1 Samuel with the title of a series called Dedicated. And that is that we are called to be dedicated. In Hannah's story, we see a story of a woman who has dedicated everything that she has to the Lord. She's come before God and she's cried out and she's dedicated her circumstances to the Lord. She's dedicated her emotions to the Lord. She's dedicated her relationships to the Lord. And she's dedicated her promises to the Lord. She says, if the Lord would bless me with a son, I will give my son back to the Lord. I will dedicate him to the Lord. If we can look at this and we can say, prescriptively, how does this apply to our lives? What can we learn from this? I think the lesson learned today from an amazing, humble woman whose heart was broken was that she got real with God. She was honest with God. She was vulnerable and she dedicated everything in her life to God. She dedicated it all, including the baggage it doesn't say that Hannah went to her tent on her own to cry by herself. She was found in the church, broken and in anguish, crying out to God. She dedicated her emotions to God. We have a church, not our church necessarily, but the capital C church that over the last 50, 60, 70 years has painted this unrealistic picture that we have to come to church with it all figured out. That there are some preconceived ideas of things that we must do in order to enter into the presence of God. And we'll even spiritualize it. Exodus 3, Moses, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. And what did the Bible say about Moses? He took his shoes off, but he was scared to death. He was emotional. God, what are you doing? Who are you? Who should I tell him you are? I can't go. I have a speech impediment. I'm a murderer. I'm a fugitive on the run. I can't think of a better place to come before God and tell him everything than right here at church. And the thing about it is God gives us these relationships, these human interactions to remind us just how jacked up everybody else is too and we're not as bad as we think we are. But what I really want us to hear more than anything is friends. 
No matter where you're at, good, bad, and indifferent, in this story, you see Elkanah, whose life seems, seems to be perfect. It couldn't get any better. He's got two wives. He's got children. He's got land. He's a wealthy farmer. He's got an agricultural business that is booming. His cattle are growing every year. He's able to go and sacrifice not one bull, not two bulls, but three bulls. And he's able to give an ephod. He's able to give wine up to six gallons of wine. He's able to go and annually take this pilgrimage with his family. I mean, Elkanah's situation couldn't get better. And then you've got Hannah, whose situation couldn't get worse. And the consistency over both of them is that God, that's it, God. And they both, in good and in bad, lived dedicated lives to God. They said, in my wealth and in my poverty, in my joy and in my sorrow, in my plenty and in my want, I dedicate all that I have to you. I give it to you. I'm dedicating my life to you. The reason that many of us are struggling is because we have not fully surrendered our circumstances and dedicating everything to God. Maybe because we think it's petty and he wouldn't even care. <laughs> there are times where my kids will come to me and they'll be crying about something stupid something they did themselves. But you know what? You know what I don't do in the middle of that? And I'm not a perfect father. I've got a lot of flaws. But I never look at my kids when they come in brokenness and say, you're such an idiot for feeling the way you feel. You're so stupid. Are you, are you kidding right now? You're really crying about that? Doesn't mean I haven't wanted to say that. But I, I care about the burdens that my children carry. And I pray that they hear the same things every time, the same consistent thing every time. Dedicate it to the Lord. What you're going through, dedicate it to the Lord. Your relationships, dedicate them to the Lord. Your finances, dedicate them to the Lord. Your emotions, dedicate them to the Lord. The Bible says he's near to the brokenhearted. The Bible says he, he cares for you. He calls you to cast every care upon him because he cares for you. The Bible says, Jesus, he tells us that it's yoke easy, burden is light. And he calls us to take on for ourselves his yoke, his burden. My challenge to you is the challenge that I believe God has for all of us in this story. Every one of us is called to live dedicated lives to the Lord. May it begin with me in Jesus' name.